Seltzer Kings podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Don't even mention Euro Disco, Gavin. No one wants to think about the fish-pale belly of a liver puddlian with a shirt unbuttoned to his navel trying to do the hustle. Yes. The following podcast contains... Ooh, all that foul language. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. And you got so pissed you lost your job you started a race riot about dance music? What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 361, The Night They Drove Old Disco Down edition of the show, where we talk about that time white people got real, real, real mad about disco music. Stay tuned. Be what the hell you think of podcast is brought to you by Boogie Shoes. You got the move, now you need the shoes. Are you looking to put a little flair into your club attire? Tired of the same old boring shoes everyone else is wearing? Then come on over to Boogie Shoes for all your funky fly footwear. We've got everything from stiletto heel to moon boots to platform soles so tall you'll get a nosebleed. Every Boogie Shoe is glittered, glam, and gorgeous. And for when you can't bear to leave your pet fish at home, Boogie Shoes have clear heels suitable for anything, even your fish. So don't try to dance the night away with boring feet blues. Get your groove on in Boogie Shoes. 50,000 people, the largest crowd of the season, showed up at Chicago's Comiskey Park for the twinite doubleheader between the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers. 15,000 others had to be turned away. Many had come for Disco Demolition Night, a promotional gimmick. Between games, as planned, a huge box containing thousands of disco records was blown up. The rest was unplanned. Fans stormed out onto the field in the thousands. Disco records were hurled like frisbees. Bonfires were set. Bottles were thrown. The batting cage was torn down and destroyed. Fistfights broke out. White Sox players had to be locked in their clubhouse for their own protection. The melee lasted an hour and a half and resulted in 39 arrests and a few minor injuries. The baseball fans missed the second game. It was canceled. The White Sox lost it. It was forfeited to Detroit. Growing up in rural southeastern Tennessee during the mid-70s, I was uh, naturally not a music aficionado, unless that music happened to be featured on Sesame Street. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. The ladybugs came to the ladybugs picnic. Oh, my Gen X head will be singing that for the rest of the day. Nor was my home a particularly musical home. My mom would pop in the occasional Elvis 8 track, but that was about all. And my dad, oh, my dad was known to get down with the spirit and sing loud, proud, and painfully from time to time. Unfortunately for all of us in earshot. Of course, the songs all came from a hymnal and had a lot to say about Jesus. Like that, but uh, 
much, 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 much wider. If there was one thing I knew, even at, say, eight or nine, about music, it was the fundamental truth. It's Oh, yeah, I mean, it said so right there on everybody's T-shirts. Now, I lived in Etowah, Tennessee, population just north of a 1,000 people, and there wasn't a proper disco within 100 miles of the place. Sure, there might have been some clubs in Cleveland or Chattanooga that snuck a disco hit on every so often, but to find a proper disco, you had to take your ass to Atlanta. And nobody in Etowah was saying, Disco, I'll go. At least not in public where anyone else could hear. So why were people so mad there about music? Just a white, white thing. Yeah, you see, for a hot minute in the mid-70s, disco broke into the mainstream and suddenly every music artist was doing a disco-influenced song or album. I mean, the fucking Eagles did a disco album. Man, come on, I had a rough night and I hate the fucking Eagles. It wasn't just the dude, a lot of people hated the long run almost as much as the Eagles hated each other, which is uh, saying something. I want to be clear, the long run wasn't really a disco album, but there were a couple of songs on there that were definitely disco influenced, and that made some white fans convinced the band had finally sold out, which was just stupid. The band had sold out long before this album. It just took a while for the money and the drugs to get old. What I'm saying is, is... There's a certain type of white people who just hated disco for everything it represented because disco didn't represent them. If you're drawing breath in the 21st century, you know what disco is. I'm going to tell you anyway. Always have, always will. The disco sound is so instantly identifiable that even the tinnest of tin ears can spot it easily, which is what makes it sound so pervasive. But disco is, musically speaking, a melange of influences and styles that coalesce to its own distinct genre. It's characterized by four-on-the-floor beats, syncopated bass lines, string sections, horns, electric piano synthesizers, and electric guitar rhythms. There are variations, of course, but the heart of every disco song is basically a variation of that rhythm you just heard. But what makes disco so cool is how American it is, but in the good sense of the word. The precursors of disco were R&B, soul, funk, and jazz, and they were all homegrown genres created by the black community out of much older musical traditions. But disco came along, took all that, and shaped it into a distinct sound for the people of black, Latin, and Italian-American cultures in the New York and Philadelphia area in the late 1960s. When the gay community discovered it, they embraced it, and then they infused the music and the style surrounding the genre. It was the kind of melting pot that's supposed to be the American ideal. Out of many, we become one funky glam dame freaking out on the dance floor getting our groove on, which is why white people hated it so much. The rise of disco is as a lifestyle is its own podcast series and one which I am wildly unqualified to create. Never stopped you before. So I'm going to cram it down into this. The disco music was a direct response to the cultural revolution of the 1950s and 60s, filtered through the groups just gaining social status and was co-opted by the children of immigrants who were just beginning to experience their, their whiteness. That would be the Italians, by the way. During a time of terrible uncertainty and roiling backlash against the very movement that gave them their voices. The young people who embraced an influence of disco lifestyle were working through their own place in a new society and finding out where and how they would fit in the world that came out of the 1960s. They were also fucking like rabbits and doing a shit ton of drugs. 
awesome. Definitely awesome, man. Disco was and still is club music. Dance club DJs mixed and mashed songs and recorded them on their own super long playing albums overlaid with the driving beat that fueled the dance floor, which made the other artists infuse their songs with elements. And that made people in the music business think, So, uh, we can make some money off of this? And by the mid-1970s, Discos was doing big airplay on black music stations. Not black-owned stations, mind you, just black music stations. And was starting to creep into the mainstream pop music stations around the country. Then more and more songs began climbing the charts and it was abundantly clear that this music was going to be a thing. This is what made disco truly huge. Somebody told me I was good in my life. Two, two, twice. This race today and dance and dance at the disco. A young Vinnie Barbarino. Here is that Sicilian songbird, the wonderful Mr. Vinnie Barbarino. Now, you probably know him by the name he goes by now, John Travolta. 1977 Saturday Night Fever with his BG's-driven soundtrack, Beautiful People, and genuinely good acting, blasted disco right into the veins of middle America, making a lot of white people think they could dance like Travolta, which I'm sad to report, they very much could not. Still, it got Travolta an Oscar nomination, grossed $94 million in the U.S. alone, and sent the Bee Gees and disco in general to the top of the charts all around the world. It also made a lot of other music artists fuse disco beats and riffs into their music, and pretty soon, it seemed like every song you heard on the radio came right out of Studio 54. That's when the cannibalism started. Jesse Walker wrote in Reason back in 2014, quote, in 1979, there seemed to be an endless supply of disco and an endless supply of disgruntled grumblings about disco. People called the music mindless and shallow, a bunch of imbecilic boogie-oogie-oogies over monotonous robotic beat. Disco culture was said to be consumerist and celebrity-obsessed, a milieu where fashionably dressed somebodies could carouse inside a club while the nobodies were stuck behind the velvet rope outside. And the stuff was all over the radio, sometimes replacing other formats entirely and sometimes subverting them insidiously, as rock bands added disco sounds to their songs and white singers invaded the playlist of black stations, unquote. The backlash against disco came hard and fast on the heels of Saturday Night Fever and the sudden domination of disco on the airwaves. Amongst music critics, the complaint was that disco was formulaic, overproduced, repetitive crap, to which I have to say of most late-period disco Mr. Rock critic, you are, uh... <laughs> you are not wrong! But I'd also like to point out that that very same year, <laughs> 1979 in this case, Kiss actually did a disco song. Bad Company and Journey were out there cranking out corporate rock, which was not exactly avant-garde. Other critics point out the gross cultural appropriation endemic in the music. Critic Greg Tate coined the term Disco Intel Pro, a reference to the FBI's infiltration of the civil rights movement because he felt the music was, quote, a form of record industry sabotage dubbed disco, unquote, designed to infiltrate black radio. The nascent punk movement regarded disco with outright loathing. Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys compared disco to Weimar Germany for its complacency, and Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo likened it to, quote, a beautiful woman with a great body and no brains, unquote, 
and a product of political apathy. That's so harsh. Harsh, but true. But for the average white dude in America, the reasons for hating disco were not much based in their high-minded music idealism. It was more a case that they found the music, uh... Faggy. Yeah, among other euphemisms that I will not enter into my drop search algorithm. If you need a mental image of the kind of dudes who hated disco, think about the characters portrayed in the 1993 movie Days to Confuse, Small Town Dudes, Love and Weed, Beer Football, and Rock and Roll. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> yes, they do. God. Yes, they do. <laughs> and do you know what those dudes did not love? Anyone or anything that wasn't just like them. You know, kind of like now. And disco was everything a red-blooded American boy had been taught to hate and fear all their lives. Blacks, Mexicans, and queers, and the women right out on the dance floor with them could only be straight-up whores. These were the seething inner core of the Disco Sucks movement. And boy, could they be marketed too. I took this from uh, the Signal Reel report on Substack. Quote, Rolling Stone critic Dave Marsh in 1979 noted how the disco sucks movement was, was a front for fear and bigotry. White males, 18 to 34, are the most likely to see disco as a product of homosexuals, blacks, and Latins, and therefore they're the most likely to respond to appeals to wipe out such threats to their security. It goes almost without saying that such appeals are racist and sexist, but broadcasting has never been an especially civil libertarian medium. Unquote. And that is where a cat by the name of Steve Dahl comes in. Would you like the chocolate factory, Charlie? No, 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 not, not Roll Dahl, Steel, Steve Dahl, but almost as bad. Dahl would take all the bubbling hate and literally blow it up on a baseball field in Chicago in 1979. Steve Dahl was and is a fairly mediocre shock chuck style DJ. He bounced around the mid-market stations in the 1970s, achieving some local success in the Midwest, and was a fairly successful morning zoo host in Detroit. You do realize this isn't a job at a morning radio show. And landed a gig at Chicago's WDAI. Chicago's Best Rock. WDAI FM. With his Steve Dahl's Rude Awakening Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. This is Travis T. Hip. This is Nolo Contendrate, staff attorney. Oh, wow, this is Laszlo Bohem. What's happening? Good morning, Tinselheads. This is Rex. Good morning, everybody. Dick Butt Kick. I'm Baba Ganesh. Hello. Hello. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. I'm the alien. And this is Boo Winkle. And I'm Art Nouveau. Hey. I'm Irma C. Residue. And I'm her husband, the doctor. And I'm Shorty, the midget engineer. Good morning. I think there's only one person to sum up that piece of tape with a proper reaction. One John Oliver. Cool. You know who else was unimpressed by Doll? The city of Chicago. His ratings were shit, and 10 months later, after Dahl was hired, he was fired when WDAI switched formats to all disco all the time. 
That drop from Airplane is a direct reference to this format change. That's how big of a deal it was at the time. Now, one might think that being a radio DJ doll would be used to being fired, because eh, they get fired a lot. But what doll could not handle was being fired because of disco. After a couple of months of unemployment, Dahl landed another Chicago radio station gig, WLUP The Loop. Hi. I'm Tom O'Toole from The Loop, FM 98. Do you like music? At The Loop, we really like music. All the old great classics. Boy, there's so many good ones. And new things, good ones, things I think you'll like. Would you do me a favor? Try us. Listen. I think you'll like it. The Loop, FM 98. Boy, that enthusiasm sure makes me want to listen. Dahl became the morning DJ where he soon met his wacky zoo partner, Gary Meyer, and they scored lots of laughs by making fun of his previous station calling WDAI Disco Die and marking the, uh, mocking the uh, station slogan Disco DAI. Clever. Not so much. He also pulled off the fucking biggest thing a DJ could possibly do. He made a fan army based on hating disco that he called, and I'm not making this up, the insane Coho Lips. Uh, okay. Dahl told the Chicago Tribune in 2009, quote, Yeah, that's what the name of our anti-disco army. The insane unknowns were a popular gang back then, and I passed the Coho fishing fleet in Burnham Harbor every morning on my way to work. So I put the two together, and voila, unquote. And the insane Coho lips were dedicated to one thing, that disco sucked, and were engaged in a war to, quote, dedicated the eradication of the dreaded musical disease known as disco, unquote. And, you know, this might have just been harmless, stupid radio fun. After all, hating disco was good for ratings and made for great buzz in the station. And having a fan army was the sort of thing that a morning zoo DJ dreamed about. The sway that Stern fans would shout Baba Booey into TV cameras or Don and Mike fans would call up Larry King and ask if he... I just noticed something that in one of your interviews with John Candy, I believe, it looked like an older interview, you had less hair than you have today. How do you explain that? I uh, don't wear a wig, sir. Paint your bald spot? What bald spot? You paint your bald spot? I don't know what you're talking about, sir. My hair grows. You paint your bald spot? I don't have a bald spot. How come you had less hair on the tape? Maybe my hair grew. Maybe I had a bad haircut that day. You paint By the way, something. What do you care? Paint your bald spot? I don't. Do you paint your bald spot? Paint your bald spot? Mm, sick. <laughs> Sorry. I will never not laugh at that. And that sort of thing is just the sort of thing that makes a DJ or a, a podcast host lose their head just a little. I mean, if I were to find out that you, the pod friends, had sort of made a little fan army where uh, see, maybe you would shout something like, uh, Gavin sucks into a TV camera every time you pass by. Yeah, I would love it too. And these kind of things sell t-shirts and they make for great radio. And most important, they make for fun live events. And that is where shit started to go wrong. I'm quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, when a discotheque in Linwood, Illinois switched from disco to rock in June, Dahl arrived as did several thousand co-hosts. 
and the police were called. Later that month, Dahl and several thousand co-hosts occupied a teen disco in the Chicago suburbs. At the end of June, Dahl urged his listeners to throw marshmallows at a, D- a WDAI promotional van at a shopping mall where a teen disco had been built. The co-hosts then chased the van and driver and cornered them at a local park, though the situation ended without violence. On July 1st, a near riot occurred in Hanover Park, Illinois, when hundreds of co-hosts could not enter a sold-out promotional event. Fights broke out and some 50 police officers were needed to control the situation, unquote. This should have been a warning to Dahl, the radio station, and the sponsors of the show, but they were enjoying the publicity and the ratings bump, and that is how Disco Demolition Night came to be scheduled for Comiskey Field, Chicago, home of the White Sox, June 12th. 1979. From a 2004 ESPN.com article, quote, The gimmick was relatively simple. It was designed by Dahl, Schwartz, and Mike Veek, the son of White Sox auditor Bill Veek. Fans who brought a disco record to the park were admitted for 98 cents. The ticket price matched WLUP's frequency, FM 98. Dahl would blow up the records between games of a Detroit-Chicago doubleheader. I was just trying to get through the evening without being humiliated, Dahl says. I mean, how many people could you draw? A few thousand? The park would still look empty. Dahl's apprehension seemed justifiable. Comiskey Park had a capacity of 52,000, and the previous night game had only drawn 15,520 fans. The White Sox were 40 and 46. They might have actually sucked more than disco. It's debatable. An estimated 90,000 people showed up for disco demolition night. Bill Veek would later observe that sometimes a promotion can work too well, unquote. 90,000 people showed up. And not because they were White Sox fans. Keep in mind, Comiskey Field had a capacity of only 50,000. People who couldn't get in through the regular methods were jumping turnstiles and climbing fences to get into the doubleheader game. And it's in-between game activity. And that activity would be dull, taking all those records the fans had brought to the game, putting them in a big box on center field, and blowing them up. Let's go blow some shit up. Did I mention that the insane coho lips were also insanely white? Because they were. In fact, I would venture to say the only thing whiter than a group of cohos were, say, a clan meeting or a GOP strategy session. You weren't seeing a lot of brothers in the parlance of the time running around with a Disco Sucks t-shirt, even ironically. And Disco Demolition Night was even whiter than usual in every sense of the word. Vince Lawrence, who was a black teenager at the time and worked as an usher at Comiskey Park, told The Guardian in 2019, quote, something wasn't right. People weren't just turning up with disco records, but anything made by a black artist. I said to my boss, hey, a lot of these records they're bringing in aren't disco. They're R&B and they're funk. Should I make them go home and get a real disco record? And he said, no, if they brought a record, take it and they get a ticket. He laughs. I want to say that maybe the person bringing the record just made a mistake, but given the amount of mistakes I witnessed, why weren't there any air supply or cheap trick records in the bins? No Carpenter's records. They weren't rock and roll, right? It was just disco records and black records in the dumpster. Someone walked up to me and said, hey, you, disco sucks, and snapped a 12-inch in half in my face, Lawrence says. And that's when I started feeling like, okay, they're just targeting me because I'm black. I got a loop t-shirt on. What's the difference between me and the next usher trying to get back to his locker? I was one of the few African-American people in the stadium. Steve Dahl said it wasn't discriminatory. He was an equal opportunity offender or whatever, but Steve didn't invite no brothers to Comiskey Park, unquote. Going back to ESPN, quote, once inside, they drank, referring to the co-hosts, they drank Schlitz, a lot of Schlitz. 
a slitz load. The Tigers scored unearned runs, unearned runs in the first and second innings. They never trail players on both teams were pelted with debris. And the final score of the first game was 4-1 to Detroit. Pat Underwood was the winning pitcher. Lawn with four, stole two bases. No one homered. It was a really wretched game, but that's only a footnote. The festivities began when the game ended. Wasted co-hosts cheered themselves hoarse. Dahl wore a combat helmet and circled the field in a jeep. The White Sox wore batting helmets and hid in their dugout. Dahl was introduced by Meyer. Vinyl 45s whistled through the air. The co-host chanted disco sex. A crate of records was obliterated in center fields. Fans roared. Ken Kravick began to warm up on the mound. He was scheduled to start for the Sox in game two. He sprinted for the clubhouse when thousands of co-hosts began to spill onto the field, unquote. Let's, uh, let's take a listen to the actual audio of Steve Dahl on the night in question. Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! And we're never going to let them forget it! They're not going to show it through our torch! We rock and rollers will resist, and we will triumph! All right, you ready? We're going to count to three and then go boom. And they're going to pull for England. I'm telling you, it's going to be hot. One, two, three, boom. Here they go. As the interminable event went on and I watched the entire video, it went on and on. It's longer than Inagata Davida. The preening of Dahl just kept getting bigger and wilder until finally they blew up the records and then Dahl preened some more. And all the while, more and more people are trickling out of the stands and onto the field. At first, security was able to keep them back, but soon enough, hundreds of people were racing across the field, kicking burning vinyl into the fire from the explosions until it finally seemed the entire stands emptied onto the field. Even beloved White Sox announcer Harry Carey couldn't coax the rampaging co-hosts back to their seats. The radio peoples were whisked off the field and the teams had to be locked inside their locker rooms for their own safety while the fans raged outside. It would eventually take riot police from the Chicago PD, who was strangely restrained after their showing only 10 years earlier during the Democratic National Convention. It's like a shirtless drunk white boys destroying property weren't as big as a threat as a bunch of hippies, women, and black people. <laughs> it's funny how that happens, huh? And when they arrived, people began fleeing the field, and eventually 39 people were arrested. There were a few reports of injuries, but no one was killed or seriously injuries. It was just a, it was just white boys being white boys, I guess. And you can imagine, there were serious repercussions for such a huge shit show. Quoted again from ESPN, quote, Dahl and Meyer are retreated to a downtown Holiday Inn. We listen to the radio, Dahl recalls. All the talk shows from around here and, you know, people talking about how we should be fired. We pretty much stayed up all night and we went to work. Dahl's voice was slow and gravelly the next morning. He read the headlines of the Trib and the Sun-Times and he mocked the indignant tone of local coverage. I think for the most part, everything was wonderful, he told his listeners. Some maniac co-hosts got wild and went down on the field, he paused, which you shouldn't have done, bad little co-hosts. Is that it? That, as they say, is it. 
Dahl went on to a long and storied career as a radio DJ inducted to the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. The White Sox defaulted on the game to the Tigers, which is probably the biggest consequence of the night. And even that wasn't very big of a consequence because the White House sucks. The White Sox suck. They would have lost anyway. There were a few disapproving news stories and some articles written by it. But I am large. Disco Demolition Night was chalked up as a stunt that got a little out of hand because, you know, kids these days, right? Dahl maintains to this day there was nothing racist about that night and gets pretty pissy if you imply that there was. White people, am I right? He said in 2014 op-ed, quote, the worst thing is people calling disco demolition night homophobic or racist. It, it just wasn't. It wasn't. We weren't thinking like that. It was a romp, not of major cultural significance. And that any attempts to frame it any other way was a, quote, cheap and shot and made without exploration, unquote. And Dahl wasn't alone. Columbus David Israel of the Chicago Trib said on July 12th that he was not surprised by the events, writing, It would have happened to any place 50,000 teenagers got together on a sultry summer night with beer and reefer, unquote. But if you weren't of the Caucasian persuasion, you probably saw things just a little different. Going back to Wikipedia, quote, Nile Rodgers, producer and guitarist for the disco era band Chic, likened the event to Nazi book burning. Gloria Gaynor, who had a huge disco hit with I Will Survive, stated, I've always believed it was an economic decision, an idea created by someone whose economic popularity of disco was adversely affected by the popularity of disco music. So they got a mob mentality going. Harry Wayne Casey, singer of the, of the disco act Casey and the Sunshine Band, did not believe Disco Demolition Night was discriminatory. He just felt Dahl was simply an idiot, unquote. Chicago area journalist Mark W. Anderson, who was there that night as a 15-year-old, wrote, quote, it was an extension of the narrative that had grown up around the idea that over the past 50 years or so, poor blacks had pushed out wealthier whites from large parts of the south and southwest sides of Chicago, not far from where my suburban childhood took place. It was part of an everyday conversation back then, discussed as both fear and surprise that a group of undesirables could threaten what was seen as a birthright of racial intolerance and isolation. Popular music was ripe for a takeover, and disco just happened to be the next thing that came along. We didn't like it, and gleefully poured scorn and derision on a culture whose fans were regular citizens and neighbors just like us. As a result, 60,000 kids happily paid 98 cents to see a man dressed in army fatigues and ride in a jeep blow up their hated musical enemies that warm summer night. And even though we didn't say it in those terms, we certainly didn't want black folks to take over our rightful place at the top of the youth culture as exploited in radio airtime, TV specials and concerts and places like Comiskey Park. Because in the end, the chance to yell disco sucks meant more than a simply a musical style choice. It was a chance to push back on a whole set of social dynamics that lied just beneath the surface of a minor battle between a DJ and a radio station that decided to change formats. More importantly, it was a chance for a whole lot of people to say they didn't like the way the world was changing around them or who they saw as potential victors in a cultural and demographic war. And from the perspective of 35 years later, it was hard to believe few of any of those who organized the event didn't see that underlying reality for what it was, or perhaps still continue to cling to the idea that it was all harmless fun, unquote. But you know what? Doll won. Disco Demolition Night is wildly hailed as the night disco died. Doll said in a 2004 interview, quote, 
probably on its way out, but I think Disco Liberation Night hastened its demise, unquote. By 1981, disco was called dance music, and it exiled back to the clubs where the gays and the blacks and the Hispanics continued to dance the night away. Reagan was president and rock and roll was once again king for a little while. Things were changing, and before long, a new genre of music would come out of some of the same communities that birthed disco and go on to change American music forever. And this time, there wasn't a damn thing white people could do about it, except, you know what white people always do, appropriate it and profit from it. So, VIP, let's kick it. I'm not going to sit here and claim that disco music was always great music or that I would not or did not think that it sucked when I was a kid. Trust me, a 15-year-old Dave would have been at Comiskey Park, Comiskey Field that night if uh, I had been in Chicago uh, as a 15-year-old in 1979 and my mom would have let me go, which she wouldn't have. Mama's boy! By 1979, the music was over-commercialized, overproduced, derivative crap. The culture was ridden with drugs, sexism, and white dudes with their shirts unbuttoned pretending that they could do the hustle. It had been strip-mined like a West Virginia mountaintop by the music industry to extract every fucking dollar they could get out of disco. And it had become as much of a parody of itself as any parody song that Steve Dahl or Rick Dees could ever produce. I'm a disco duck. Even the people who created the genre were slightly ashamed of what it became or would have been if they weren't so coked up. But the backlash against disco was never about the music. It was about angry white people watching the world change and not like it. And I guarantee goddamn tea you that many of the same exact people who shouted disco sucks in 1979 were shouting build that wall in 2016 and having a shit fit about wearing a mask on a fucking plane. If not them, definitely their children, who wouldn't be right at home with the insane coho lips. Although, I will say this, it does appear that Steve Dahl himself does hate Donald Trump. So he's got that going for him, I guess, which is nice. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. My God, this show turned into a monster on me. I didn't intend to go this long or do nearly as much research as I wound up doing. Look, all I just wanted to do was do a show about doofy white people ruining a baseball game in 1979, and this is where I found myself. Sadly, you had to come along with me. But that's how these things go. You start off in a simple happy place and suddenly find yourself eyeballs deep in the quagmire of the American culture wars that have been going on forever. Speaking of going on forever, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods so people can find it, listen to it, and then go on forever and ever and wonder why you dropped them into a quagmire like this show. If you want to help the podcast, buy a few disco albums because, yeah, I like fucking disco. Most of it does not, in fact, suck. Kick us a dollar on patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Now do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closer. Otherwise, he will come over to your house and show you how he does the hustle. And Jeremy, I love you like a brother. You can't dance for shit. So for me, Dave, the night they drove old disco down Bledsoe, producer, no, please, oh God, oh God I hate you. All the DJs were playing bow, shika wow, 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 boom, dicka boom, dicka wow, 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 curse you. Gavin and all the fictional disco freaks on the show, we want to say, you can tell by the way we use our walk that we're women's men with no time to talk. 
We'll see you all next week. Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. <coughs> Disco Stew likes disco music. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.